hello hello and welcome back to the killer kind podcast i hope you all had a fun easter weekend i know i did and you may be shocked that i actually managed to put out a podcast episode over a holiday weekend but so am i to be honest i'm not sure how i did it but i was bound and determined to not miss a week for you guys So with that said, I've got a cold case for you today. It took 42 years for this case to finally have some answers. Without further ado, let's travel back in time and dive into the murder of John McCabe. Nineteen sixty nine seems like a lifetime ago, and growing up, I remember idolizing that year, largely because of Woodstock, the huge music festival in August of nineteen sixty nine that really seemed like the greatest thing on the planet. Plus, I used to be a space nerd and maybe still am a little bit, so the moon landing in July of that year was fascinating. And speaking of that, I'm here for any and every conspiracy theory there is. So the 60s and 70s have intrigued me for as long as I can remember. But that's a whole nother podcast that maybe I'll end up doing one day. We'll see. But 1969 was a different world. It was just simpler times. I feel like you always hear about how it was a time when nobody locked their doors, kids played outside until dark, and the world just seemed to be a better place than it was or than it is now. And that was probably true for many people at that time, but 1969 would prove to be the worst time in one family's life. In September of 1969, Bill and Evelyn McCabe had three beautiful children. The oldest, Debbie, who was 17, Roberta, who was 6, and the middle child, their son, John McCabe, who was 15 years old. The family lived in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, which was a pretty small town. In 1970, there was a population of about 23,000. And the McCabes were your typical middle-class family. Bill was an engineer, Evelyn worked at the school library, and their son John McCabe was adorable. He had beautiful blue eyes and bright red hair. And despite having two sisters, John was all boy. (laughs) His older sister, Debbie, said he was a prankster too, which most little brothers are. She said you never knew what he was going to do. She said it was pretty interesting. You open your closet door and your closet's filled with grasshoppers. (laughs) His other sister, Roberta, said she just remember his hands always being dirty with oil or grease or he was holding a frog. (laughs) John loved to ride his bike and rebuild engines. He was definitely a future engineer like his dad. His mom said that although he was a tough young boy, he had a soft spot for animals. He brought home an injured goose one time, and there's actually a photo of him on the internet, and some friends of him are out in the snow where he's holding a goose. I'm gonna assume it's the same one, but either way, he was always outside, and he was always into something, but he had a good heart. The family all loved each other. They all got along and really seemed to be living the American dream. However, that would all change on September 26th, 1969. John was given permission to attend his school's Knights of Columbus dance. His parents said he was pretty excited. He took a shower, made sure to wash his hair really well, and then he put on his dad's aftershave, even though he didn't even need to shave. I mean, he was getting fully ready for this dance. 
And from what I understand, John walked by himself to the dance and then planned to walk home as well afterwards at around 11 p.m. when the dance was over. John had asked one of his classmates to the dance, Maggie Coffey. She said in a later interview that the two were in art class together and he came right up to her and showed him his poster and said, I made this for you. And then that's when he asked her to the dance. She said, I of course said yes, but my mom made me stay home and babysit. She said, I cried and cried and pissed and moaned about the whole thing. So sadly, John had to go to the dance alone. When 11 p.m. rolled around, John's mother started looking out the window, expecting to see her son at any moment just walking up the stairs through the front door. She said he should be home by midnight at the latest. However, the closer it got to midnight, the more worried she became when she hadn't seen John. So she decided to drive down to the dance and check the roads along the way. Evelyn said she was yelling his name out the window as she was driving down these dark suburban streets. She said something just felt off. She could tell something was wrong and instantly started praying. Evelyn would spend all night praying and hoping to see her son John again. But by the next morning, he had not come home. And the McCabe's received the knock on the door. That is every parent's worst nightmare. Two police officers arrive at the home of Evelyn and Bill McCabe and ask to speak to Bill downstairs in the basement. Evelyn said, they didn't want me to know anything, but I heard them. She said she knew she could hear everything from the basement from the vent in the bathroom. So she got down on her knees and pressed her ear to the vent. And that's when she heard what no parent should ever have to hear. Miss McCabe said that she heard the police tell her husband that John's body was discovered by three young kids cutting through a vacant lot in the neighboring poor town of Lowell. She said, I heard that he was tied up and that there was tape on his eyes and mouth. She said she just lay down and cried. A huge investigation was launched by the Lowell, Tewksbury, and Massachusetts State Police. They started with the evidence that they had at the scene, which was a rope that was used to tie him up, the tape that was used to tape his eyes and mouth, and all of the clothes and shoes that were left on his body. There was forensic evidence, but the local DA, Jerry Leone, who took the case on years later, said, although there was forensic evidence, which was a fingerprint found on one of the pieces of tape, it wasn't really meaningful because you couldn't tie it to anyone in particular. And keep in mind, this was 1969. DNA testing hadn't become a thing until 1986, and it wasn't until 1990 that CODIS started. CODIS is this huge database that state and local forensic laboratories can use to search nationwide fingerprints and DNA that had been saved into this database. This case was covered on 48 Hours a few years ago, and I heard the host say that if this case would have taken place today, it would have been solved very quickly. But sadly, it would take many years to receive answers. However, the case did look promising at first, There was an eyewitness that came forward saying they spotted a car near the crime scene that night. It was described as a 1965 Chevrolet Impala colored plum or maroon. Then another tip led police to a school classmate of John's. That was 16-year-old Michael Ferreira, who said he 
barely knew John. Let's pause for the cause. If you're an investigator listening to the killer kind, you're probably not. You may already know this, but just in case, if they say, I barely knew them, or I don't even know them, red flag, red flag, red flag. (laughs) Not that I'm giving everything away. I'm not, but that's always the red flag for me. They're just distancing themselves from the person. That's a red flag. Anyway, sorry, moving on. So they interview this Mike Ferreira, and he says he maybe saw John a handful of times in his life. Didn't really know him. He wasn't a friend. However, he and his friend Nancy Williams were questioned because they had reportedly picked John up when he was walking to the dance. Now, some people say John was hitchhiking to the dance. I don't know if that's exactly true or not, but I have seen it mentioned a couple times, so it's a possibility. Or these kids just saw that he was in a suit and realized it was somebody they went to school with and decided to pick him up and give him a ride to the dance. Nancy told police that she picked him up and gave him a ride to the corner and I never saw him again. Mike told police that during the dance, he left Nancy and met up with his good friend, Walter Shelley. He said, me and Walter took a ride to Lowell trying to get some beer. He said they were all in Walter's car. Do you want to take a wild guess as to what kind of car he was driving? I'll give you a second. (laughs) It was a maroon 1965 Chevy Impala. Remember, this is the exact description by the eyewitness who said they saw a car near where John's body was found. So obviously police searched Walter Shelley's car. But there was no evidence found inside. However, Walter was now a person of interest, of course. Regardless, he was brought in for questioning and later polygraphed five separate times. The test showed that he was lying in all vital areas of the questioning every time. And not only did he fail these polygraph tests that implicated him in the crime, he also was heard a few different times joking to friends that he was the one who killed John McCabe. When asked about this later, he said that he was just young, drunk at the time, and kidding around. So it seemed pretty obvious that Mike Mike Ferreira and Walter Shelley were involved with John McCabe's death, right? No doubt. But there just wasn't enough evidence against them. Plus, a year after the murder, Walter and Mike reportedly left the area and entered the service. So, Police had no other choice than to move on to other possible suspects, other leads, anybody else that could be involved, or anyone who could give them a clue as to who could have done this. And there were dozens of other people that police looked into, other teens, local drug dealers, and pedophiles, and the detectives worked extremely hard on the case for a solid two years. But with no leads and no further evidence, the McCabe family was left without answers for decades. During that time, Bill McCabe, John's father, started making a record of his son's life, writing down every detail that he could recall in an effort to never lose those memories, which is just heartbreaking to think about. Bill and Evelyn spent the next four decades really struggling with the loss of their son, They would keep a setting at the dinner table for John every night because they couldn't bear having dinner without him. Bill spent days and nights after the murder talking to police, asking for updates, telling them anything he could think of, things that he heard over the years, etc. 
He said that Evelyn would wake up in the middle of the night and hear him on the phone with the police, and she'd tell him to hang up and go back to bed. Evelyn had her own struggles, though. I read somewhere that she actually put a rope around her neck and started trying to strangle herself so that she could feel the way her son felt in his final moments. Evelyn told 48 Hours, quote, I don't think I've had a whole night's sleep since it happened. She went on to say, I always visualized him being a big shot somewhere, and I knew that he'd pick the right girl when he decided to get married, but I never got to see any of those things. And I mean, just the torture that these poor parents felt is just horrible to think about. So like I said, this case went cold for decades. For 31 years, there was nothing. But finally, the case received new light in November of the year 2000. Bill McCabe received a tip from Jack Ward, a childhood friend of John's. Jack had promised Bill many years prior that he would do everything he could to help find out what happened to his friend. So Jack said that while he was at a barbecue, he saw former classmate Mike Ferreira. And once again, Mike brings up John's murder. He said that he knew who killed John McCabe and why. Mike supposedly tells everyone that the motive for the killing was jealousy, that John had been flirting with Walter Shelley's girlfriend, Marla Shiner, and that just didn't sit well with Walter. So finally, there's a possible motive. Now, Jack Ward does admit that he sat on this information for a while, worried about how he was going to tell Bill. He said, quote, You go knocking on somebody's door and say, Hey, I know who killed your son. You better have it right. However, this still doesn't provide any actual evidence. There's still nothing that can physically tie Walter Shelley to the murder. But Bill said that he wrote down exactly what Jack told him on a piece of paper. And he said he put it in the Bible on a page beginning in the book of John so he wouldn't forget it. And immediately he called the police. And honestly, the police did not take this claim seriously at the time. It took them another three years to actually look into this a little more and decide to pay Mike a visit to hear his side of the story. Now, he was living in Salem, New Hampshire, working as a forklift operator and was married to Nancy Williams, the same girl that he was with the night of the dance. Nancy tells authorities that Mike is the sweetest man. He wouldn't hurt a fly. (laughs) There's no way he was involved. And then when they asked Mike what happened at the barbecue, like, why would he make all these claims? Mike, of course, says Jack Ward is lying. Yes, he said some of the things, but his version of the story isn't at all how it went down. Mike claims that Jack and some of the others at the barbecue were talking about what happened to John that night and kept harassing Mike, saying they knew Walter Shelley did it. And he said he finally got sick of hearing it. He said everybody was drinking and tensions became high. When asked why he would say that Walter killed John, he said it was just, quote, drunk talk. And he actually said, yeah, he probably did do it. He was saying what they wanted to hear, supposedly. And when asked about this jealousy motive, he said that Jack actually insinuated that this was the motive, that he made that part up, not him. Now, I did read later that Marla Shiner did an interview and said that John did not flirt with her that night. She's not sure where that story came from. 
but we'll get into that a little bit more later. But again, take it with a grain of salt. Either way, though, this Mike guy had an answer for everything. He had a response to everything that he's ever said. Yet, this is not the first time we know of that somebody was drinking and confessing they knew what happened to John, right? So, I'm sure police were dying to pin this murder on these two guys, this Mike and Walter. But again, they couldn't actually prove it. Everything was just he said, he said, right? So unfortunately, the case stalls once again. But in 2007, a new district attorney was sworn in to Middlesex County, this Jerry Leone. And that's when members of the Lowell Police Department visited the new DA and asked his office to take a look into the John McCabe case. So everyone that knew and loved John had hope that with a fresh set of eyes on the case that it'd finally be solved and that hopefully somebody would be brought to justice. So investigators go back over the files, and this time a name jumps out at them in the latest interview with Mike. When telling about the night of the murder, Mike said he was with Walter Shelley, which we already know. However, this time he said there was another guy with him named Alan Brown. So Jerry Leone said, we're going to focus on this Alan guy. Edward Allen Brown was 17 and lived not far from the McCabe home when John was killed. Obviously, he had since moved from that area, but when police tracked him down, Allen straight up says he knew nothing about the murder. Never even heard about it. Now, what did I say earlier? If someone says, I don't even know them, or in this case, I've never heard about him, I don't even know who this John guy is, red freaking flag. <laughs> this town was entirely too small for someone to not have even heard about a murder that took place. Now, there wasn't too much they could do with this information other than thinking it was very suspicious. However, not long after they talked to Alan, they get a phone call. The investigators on the case get a call from none other than Alan Brown's wife, and she drops a bombshell that further insinuates police are on the right track. The DA said his wife called and she said that she thought her husband was lying. Carolyn Brown indicates to police that 20 to 25 years earlier, her husband had told her about an evening where he was involved in a murder of a young man. I'm guessing he didn't name names at the time, but when she found out police came to the door asking about a murder that happened about 40 years ago, she probably put two and two together. But y'all, once again, police are saying they don't have enough to pin the murder on any person in particular. And I get it. I'm, I'm not sure if the physical evidence they had was tested or if they even still had the tape with the fingerprint and the rope used to tie him up. I don't know. But once again, the case goes nowhere. Y'all, I promise there's an answer to this one. It just feels like they always had the right guy kept getting word-of-mouth confirmation, but they couldn't seal the deal. With that said, though, let's get into who finally made it happen. In 2011, a detective by the name of Linda Coughlin was assigned to the case, and Evelyn McCabe said the case really took off when she met Detective Coughlin, and when asked why she felt this way, Evelyn said it was because of her attitude. She said, I'm going to get them, and she did. 
So Detective Coughlin zeroed in on this Alan Brown guy. He was retired from the Air Force and living in New Hampshire. She interrogated Alan twice and also issued a polygraph test. It wasn't until she broke the news to him that he failed that polygraph test that the case finally, and I do mean finally, busted wide open. Alan Brown broke down and confessed that he was there when Walter Shelley and Mike Ferreira killed John McCabe. The Lowell Police Department brought the McCabe family in and told them about Alan's confession. Roberta, John's younger sister, just asked why, and she said that her dad just started crying. On April 15, 2011, the McCabe family's prayers were answered, nearly 42 years after John was tragically murdered. Edward Allen Brown was indicted for manslaughter, and Michael Ferreira and Walter Shelley were charged with first-degree murder. Once the names and charges were released, Evelyn said that all three of these kids, these guys, came to John's wake. They were there at the funeral. Like I always say, the killers stay close to the crime. Every time. It did end up taking two years for the trial itself to take place, but on January 18th, 2013, Edward Allen Brown was called to testify against his one-time friend, Mike Ferreira, who was the first defendant to go on trial. Now, Allen was promised no jail time if he testified against Mike at his trial. So, just keep that in mind. For the first time, Allen publicly shared the details of the night John died. Allen said that he was at home watching TV when Mike and Walter showed up. He said they wanted me to help them with something. He claims he didn't know what that was at the time until he got into the car. Allen said that they were on their way to the Knights of Columbus Hall when he learned of their plan. Allen said they wanted to go find this kid that had been messing around with Walter's girlfriend, Marla, to teach him a lesson. He said on their way, Mike noticed John McCabe hitchhiking, and they pulled up next to him. Mike got out of the car and grabbed John, pushed him into the back seat where Allen was sitting. He goes on to say that while inside the car, Mike has turned around and is smacking John around, and John had his hands up trying to defend himself. He said they continue driving until they pass under the Spaghettiville Bridge, which is in the small town of Lowell. Allen said they drove down a dirt road to this vacant lot and pulled over. When the prosecutor asked who pushed John out of the car, Allen said that he did because he thought they were just going to, again, slap him around, kind of scare him a little bit. The prosecutor asked what happened next. And he said that Mike and Walter wrestled John down to the ground, and he and Walter held John down while Mike tied him up. He said Mike tied his ankles, then went around and tied his wrists together. Then he took a piece of rope around his ankles and attached it up to his neck. Then they put the tape on his mouth and his eyes. He said John was squirming and moving around, trying to get out, that he was lying on his stomach with his legs up in the air and his head turned around sideways. Then they said, quote, This'll teach you to mess with Marla anymore. And that's when they all jumped back in the car and left. Alan said the three of them went and got beer and drove around drinking for a while. 
Alan claims that he told them they should go back to let John go because they just left him laying there tied up, eyes and mouth covered, just basically left him there to die is what it seemed like. He said eventually they did turn the car around and go back to the lot where they left him. Alan said that Mike and Walter got out of the car and went over to John. He said they were there for about maybe 30, 45 seconds and both came running back to the car and took off. And while they were driving, they told Alan that John was no longer breathing. Now, the defense completely flipped Alan's testimony around and claimed everything he said was false, that none of it was true. I'm not surprised. They said that he served in the Air Force, even did a tour or two in Iraq, and he likely was messed up in the head, is basically how they put it. Allen later did retract his account when questioned by Mike's attorney and said that he made it all up because he was nervous or scared while on the stand. Which is odd, but questioning probably gets intense, so I'm not too surprised here. The defense wanted to make it seem like Alan was fed all of this information by Detective Coughlin and that everything he was saying came from the police. Detective Coughlin obviously denied that, saying it was completely untrue and no information was ever given to Alan ahead of time. I do think Alan was easily manipulated. However, I believe his claims are factual. But Marla Shiner did testify in court as well, and she claimed she never had any romantic involvement with John McCabe, and the two never flirted with each other. Marla's story did change at least once, though, when asked how she, how old she was when she was dating Walter. First, she said she was about 12 years old, which would have been about a year before John was killed. However, later she stated it was after John was killed, so... John's sister, Roberta, said that she feels that Marla was just basically not wanting to admit that she could have been the reason that John was killed, which is why she seemed to try to erase this jealousy motive. Motive or not, though, Marla testified that she ended up marrying Walter Shelley for a short period of time, and she was asked by the prosecution if Walter was ever jealous, and she said 100% he was. And on top of that, she said Walter Shelley was very, very violent. On January 25th, 2013, the verdict was in on Michael Ferreira. The jury deliberated roughly five hours before announcing that they had found Mike Ferreira not guilty of first-degree murder. One of the jurors did an interview later with 48 Hours and said him and one other juror was not fully in agreement with the not guilty verdict. He felt that he had to have been involved and that he definitely took some part in this. There was no doubt about it. He said two hours into the deliberation, they took a vote and it was 10 to 2, him being one of the two. He said he and the other juror that were there were on the same page basically spent a bunch of time trying to prove that Mike was involved, but ultimately, the verdict was not guilty. Sadly, Bill McCabe sat outside the courtroom when the verdict was read. He said his stomach just couldn't take it. And when the verdict was announced, Evelyn went outside and told him. And he said that he just broke down. 
Sadly, just four days later, Bill McCabe passed away of a heart attack. Everyone believes that he died from the stress of the trial and the disappointing verdict. Evelyn made her a promise to her husband that someone would be brought to justice for their baby boy's murder. Seven months later, on September 3rd, 2013, Walter Shelley's trial started with the same motive and the same exact evidence presented against him. His trial only lasted two days, and the verdict was ready. Evelyn herself stood outside the courtroom that time because she said she couldn't hear another not guilty. But thankfully, and kind of surprisingly, Walter Shelley was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of John Joseph McCabe. One of the very first things Evelyn McCabe did was go to her husband's grave, and she told him, we got him. What a heartbreaking case, and what a roller coaster of emotions. Evelyn McCabe passed away at the age of 84 on August 12, 2016, but luckily she was able to see her son's death be brought to justice. I mean, what are your thoughts on this case? I have many. <laughs> One being, it's infuriating that it took 40 years for this case to come to a conclusion. I mean, I totally understand that DNSing wasn't a thing, and maybe they couldn't test the DNA sooner. Maybe they couldn't test it all those years later. I don't know, but I just hate that this poor family had to wait so long for a case that seemed to be solved right away. I mean, the two men that ultimately went to trial are the two men that they had since day one. It just honestly drives me crazy that it took that long. And then there's the fact that this justice is only feels like partial justice. Yes, Walter Shelley is guilty 100%. He had the motive. He pre-planned this attack on John. However, Mike Ferreira played a huge part in this, yet he served just maybe two years from when he was charged with a crime up until his sentencing. So at least it's something, but one man gets life and the other gets basically nothing with the same exact evidence and witnesses in both trials. It just makes zero sense to me. But as always, I want to know your thoughts. So head over to the podcast Instagram and let me know how you feel and I feel like I never say this at the end of my episodes but I would love it if you'd leave a five-star review wherever you're listening or wherever you're able to leave a review at it helps other people find the show plus I just love seeing your reviews and your nice comments but that's gonna do it for me this week guys I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new case until then stay safe bye